0: This is our last Sunday of Advent, because next Sunday is Christmas, and Jesus is here, and the celebration begins. Uh, I started it a little bit early, but we've been remembering the anticipation, the coming of Jesus. We've been putting ourselves in the shoes of those who were wondering when the Messiah would arrive, whether it would happen, uh, and then experiencing the joy together God is so faithful, so amazing. We've been listening to the prophet Isaiah, and we're going to be in a passage from Isaiah again this morning. But I want to begin with a different Bible quote. Uh, You may have seen these uh, Christian inspirational calendars. You ever seen like those big thick calendars where one day per year and you tear it off and you see the next day and it's like a, a verse from the Bible and you start, you put it on your desk at work and it keeps you going. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or something like that. Well, I came across one of these, and there was an inspirational quote that uh, was kind of noteworthy. It says, uh, if thou, this is from the King James translation, if thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Seems like it's a nice reminder to worship God. Uh, God is calling his people, you should worship me. If you do this, all will be thine. It seems good at first, and it looks official and everything, but when you think about it, is that something God really said? Did God say, if you worship me, then all shall be thine? Like, you get whatever you want if you show up for church and sing O Holy Night? I don't know. That's a little suspect. You see this and you go, all right. Well, okay, when did God say this? Where did this take place in Scripture? Uh, there's a reference there for us, which is very helpful. It says it's in Luke chapter, se- uh, chapter 4, verse 7. And so if you go there in your Bible, you might not even have to go there. You might think, okay, the beginning of Luke, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke 4. Isn't that where Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness? Now hold on a second. Maybe Jesus didn't say this. Maybe this isn't a quote from God. And in fact, the people who were proofreading this uh, inspirational Christian calendar didn't do the homework and check because this is something the devil said. When the devil was tempting Jesus, he said, "If you were, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all things." And of course, Jesus was like, "Are you kidding?" That's a ridiculous offer. You can't do that. I'm not falling for it. Get lost, Satan. But I thought it was a little strange that the words of the devil were featured uh, the day before uh, July uh, on this particular calendar. It just goes to show you, you, you kind of have to know what it is you're reading in Scripture. You need to know who's talking, who they're talking to, when it was taking place. I mean, you can't always know these things right away. But when we're studying and trying to understand Scripture, you want to know some of the the basics. Context is important. So this morning we're going to hear a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, and it makes a reference to a mess- messianic prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. We want to make sure we understand what's going on in each of these passages. We're going to see that this prophecy um, does indeed point to Jesus, but it had a different meaning for Isaiah during his time, but that's not a bad thing. Sometimes something can have a certain meaning in one era, but then take on a whole new, richer, and deeper meaning when more information is brought to light. That's what we're going to see this morning. So go ahead and go with me to Matthew chapter 1. This is before Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This is before Jesus was even born. You probably recognize this story. Uh, Start in verse 18. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Now, this is the Isaiah passage. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. And it goes on from there. Last week we talked about what an exciting and joyful aha moment it would have been for Jesus' followers to realize that he indeed was the long-awaited Messiah. The early Christians, too, the the writers of the the letters and the, the collections of events that happened in the New Testament, began realizing that Jesus fulfilled several of the prophecies regarding God's coming King. I got a little table here. This is just to give you a taste. This is not by any means all of the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life and the person of Jesus. There are actually way more. But what you can see is that uh, prophecies from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, some of the prophets, some from the, the books of Moses, said that he's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a judge, a king. He's going to enter the Jerusalem temple. And there's specific things like he's going to be enter on a donkey. They talk about his identity. He was pre-existent. I'm I'm talking fast, and I'm kind of blasting through these. We're not going to go through each one of these, but this is just to give you an idea. This list could be ten times longer, over and over and over again. Jesus' life is coming. His arrival fulfilled so many prophecies. And again, we talked about people going, oh, remember what God said to Isaiah generations before. That's taking on some new meaning for us now. And Matthew, in particular, of the four Gospels, likes to point this out, like in the passage we just read. This happened to fulfill what God's prophet said, and then he quotes the Old Testament prophets. Matthew does this over a dozen times in his Gospel. Here's what I want to do now. I want to go back and take a listen to the prophecy that he's referring to, the the message received from God by Isaiah in uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, But let me give you a little bit of background first about what was going on. Remember we said the first part, first half of Isaiah is uh, God's people while they were still in Jerusalem before the exile. Well, this was during the time of King Ahaz, and you might remember Israel as a kingdom from the time of David. It seemed like it was doing okay. Things were going strong. Good king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Their history just kind of unravels, and eventually the nation is split. There's the northern kingdom Uh, of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, and then the southern kingdom, where Judah, which is where Jerusalem is located, Um, what was going on at the time was that uh, the northern kingdom was making alliances with some of the nations that were surrounding them, and even making alliances and forming a plan to attack the southern kingdom. Like, we're split, we're divided, we don't have to be caring for one another anymore, so let's just make these alliances uh, in the north and then put pressure on Jerusalem in the south. So if you're the king in Jerusalem, you are worried. And that's exactly how King Ahaz felt. So when we come across, come across King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, he's checking the water supply. Because Jerusalem is up on a hill, which means the water does not flow this way. It, they have to go and get the water. If you want to besiege a town, city that is on a hill, you just have to kind of camp out and don't let the people come down to get water. You, you literally, you just wait, you set up camp, and you starve them out. That was pretty common during the time. So King Ahaz is going, how are we going to survive this? If they make these alliances and they come after us, they're going to siege the city, and that's going to be it for us. And then this is the word that God tells Isaiah to give to King Ahaz. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. Seems like a pretty good deal. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? He's frustrated that King Ahaz said, no. God's like, I'm going to give you a sign. Ask me. I will prove to you my faithfulness. He's like, ah, no, I don't think I will. Ugh. Why would you say no to that? What's wrong with you is kind of what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, All right then, he says, the Lord himself will give you the sign. And then here's the passage we've heard. Here's the passage we're familiar with. Look, here's the sign. The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Kind of an interesting encounter if you're God's prophet Isaiah or if you're king Ahaz. If you're concerned. God says, I'm going to take care of you. Ask me for a sign. No, I don't want to ask for a sign. Asking God for a sign is kind of a tricky thing. You might recall other examples in Scripture where someone is asking God for a sign and it's considered kind of faithless. To do this. Why do you need a sign? Like, just, just trust me. Things are going to be fine. And then sometimes ask me for a sign. Like, I want to reassure you. I will give you a sign if you ask for one. Kind of go either way. And in this case, Ahaz maybe is trying to go, oh no, I don't, I don't need a sign or I don't, I don't want to deal with that. And he's like, no, no, no. You need to listen to this sign. And it's a sign that we're familiar with because we hear this around Christmas time. The sign is that the virgin will conceive and give birth. Now Isaiah does not say what virgin or young woman. He doesn't say that it's going to be a miraculous conception. That was not part of what we read in Isaiah 7. And he doesn't say it's going to be the Son of God. He just tells him, hey, in the nine months that it takes for a baby to be conceived and to be born, this threat that you're so concerned about is going to dissolve. It's not going to be there anymore. And that's kind of what happened. It did. Somewhere, a young woman had a baby. Some people think it was King Ahaz's wife, but we're not exactly sure. And they named him Emmanuel as a thank you to God for protecting his people. And so the prophecy was fulfilled, and God's people moved on, and that was it. The book was kind of closed on that prophecy. Okay, God was faithful. Good. We got the sign that we were asking for. And it was kind of shelved, like I said last week, for 700 years. And by the way, if you want to know how the rest of the history plays out. The northern and southern kingdoms were both attacked anyway, and then that's how the exile started. But that's, a, that's another story. But think about the waiting of God's people in this interim period. Last week, we talked about how hard it is to wait for something that's good for such a long time and then have to hold on to hope through something through all of these generations. There's definitely, as we've experienced ourselves, there's a downside to waiting, the frustration There's an uncertainty. There's a discomfort that we don't care to reproduce. But there's also an upside to waiting, whether you want to wait or not. There's an upside. And the upside is perspective. You get more information. You you have more time that passes, and you kind of gain a broader perspective on things. This is something you may have experienced as well. It's kind of a good reminder for us. Because there's been times in our lives where we have asked God for things. Ask God for a sign. Ask God for a result. Ask God for something specific. God, we need now come into this and flex your muscles. Be our God. Take care of your people. And sometimes it seems like the answer is no. Sometimes it seems like the answer is not right now. And we don't like those answers. It's frustrating. We think, hey God, that calendar that somebody got me said that if I just worship you, you'll give me everything that I asked for, and that's not really how it works. But the upside of waiting, the upside of having to wait is perspective. Sometimes, with time, we understand more of what God was doing around us or what God was preparing us for. Sometimes, with more time, we realize that the thing that we desperately wanted was not something we actually needed or even should have wanted, and we're grateful for the interim period that we didn't think we needed, sometimes we realize that God's no wasn't actually a no, but it was actually a yes to something else that we never in a million years could have foreseen. Sometimes. When Jesus the Messiah arrived, the benefit of perspective allowed God's people to see what so many of these prophecies were Pointing to. Think about it. Isaiah 7 meant one thing. Okay, this, this attack is not going to happen. You don't have to worry. I'm going to be faithful to you. Again, closed and shelved, done. And Jesus comes. And then these, these prophecies start being fulfilled. And oh, remember there was going to be a, a virgin. She was going to have a child. And they were, and God was going to be with his people. And it just kind of starts coming to light. Prophecies that didn't make sense start to make sense. The ones that referred to current events also seem to apply to future and coming events in God's timeline of salvation. The ones that seem to have been fulfilled with a book closed on it take on a newer and deeper meaning. And it's it's amazing when you realize this. Oh, that's what's going on. That's what God was up to. There was way more than we could have imagined. It's like when you watch a movie, and then at the end there's something that happens that kind of puts all the rest of the events in light. You ever seen a movie like that where you just go, oh, he was the bad guy the whole time. We shouldn't have trusted him. And you go back and you watch it and you're like, oh, I didn't see that before. I didn't know that that was really what was going on there. If you're familiar with the the Harry Potter movies, I think they made some books out of those movies uh, uh, as well. Uh, In the first one, there's a professor named Professor Quirrell, and he seems just kind of harmless- Like a strange fellow, nobody bothers to ask the question why he's wearing a turban. He's like, oh yeah, someone gave it to me as a gift. No big deal. Okay, cool. When a troll attacks the castle, nobody thinks it's weird that the defense against the dark arts teacher doesn't know how to defend his students from like a simple brainless uh, giant creature. He kind of passes out, oh, a giant, what am I going to do? like, huh, that's a little bit suspicious later on. You learn more about what's really going on when at the end you discover that Professor Quirrell was in league with Voldemort the entire time. Spoiler alert, sorry, Merry Christmas, it's an old movie. Once you find out he's the bad guy, you, these seemingly innocuous things begin to make more sense. and you, Ah, I see what was actually going on. In a similar way, much of the Hebrew Bible, not just the prophets, but them certainly, comes into focus when we realize what God was doing all along and how much of it was fulfilled and consummated in The birth of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. That's why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the center of the Christ Christian faith. Jesus is everything. That's why Matthew and Luke trace the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Scripture begins and ends and all points to Jesus. Permit me uh, an extended quote from Dr. Tim Keller. I, was, I, I read this, and this passage reminded me of this. I was like, ooh, I should find a way to say that. It's easier if I just read the way he said it. So a uh, little bit of a lengthy quote. All the major figures and leaders of the Scriptures point us to Jesus, the ultimate leader who calls out and forms a people of God. Jesus is the judge that all the judges point to, since he truly administers justice. The prophet all the prophets point to, since he really shows us the truth and the priest that all the priests point to, since he truly brings us back to God. And as we all know, he is the king of kings. And he goes on to say, Jesus is the true and better Adam, who passes the test in the garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answers the call of God to leave the comfortable and the familiar to go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. You know the story of Abraham. You know the story of Jacob. Jesus is in those stories, but he's the true and better, fuller version. And all all of these stories, all of these interactions that God had with his people are leading us to Jesus and are pointing us to Jesus. And we didn't know it until we saw Jesus Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who was at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed him and sold him, and uses his new power to save them. Does that sound familiar? The story of Joseph is the story of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people of the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends what it says Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one and didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in and on and on and on Jesus the whole time God in the flesh there's a song that we're going to sing at our Christmas Eve service on Saturday, and, uh, and next Sunday, too, during our Christmas morning worship service, and it's called, Mary, Did You Know? And like these songs we've been singing, this, all the songs that we sing, there is good theology in this song. There's a line that says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Mary, did you know that when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? Incredible when you realize that it, it's everything. A lot of times when people want to discover the God of the Bible, people who didn't grow up in church, people who don't know the stories of Job and Esther and Abraham, all these folks, go, yeah, 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 that story. They want to know, so they're like, okay, I'm going to learn. I'm going to a Bible and I'm going to open it up and I'm going to start in Genesis and I'm just going to read it all the way through so that I can know what Christians know, so that I can make a decision or. Whatever, I, I run into people like this. They're interested, they're curious, and they want to start at Genesis. Now, that can be problematic. Genesis is a great book, but you have to get past a lot of questions of the first few chapters. How do we take this literature? What is the, the genre? Is this a step by Is this a science book? Is this a poetry book? Is this, it's an ancient culture. There's so many questions. Sometimes people don't get past the first six, ten chapters of Genesis. But if you can get past that, well, okay, then there's some cultural stuff, then there's some some weirdness about, you know, why does he have so many wives? Why is this guy such a liar? Why are these heroes of faith such scoundrels? Okay, if you get all the way through Genesis, which is 50 chapters long, then you get to Exodus. Exodus is cool because it's God saving his people. There's these memorable things like, you know, the Red Sea crossing and the plague, the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. Okay, then it gets real kind of technical. There's a lot of law. There's a lot of... Again, stuff that you can easily get lost in. If you make it that far, you get to Leviticus and it's all over. That's, that's pretty much where the search stops. I recommend. Genesis is great. but Don't start in Genesis. Start with Jesus. Start with the Gospels. Start with Christmas. It's a great place to start. The divine in a manger. The arrival of our maker, and then go from there. What we're told in Hebrews and Colossians, that Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. Then see Jesus. So many people I know who come to faith from nothing, not having been encouraged in faith, or grown up in the church, or raised in faith. The reason that I hear over and over again is not because the church was slick. It's not even because the people were kind and welcoming. It wasn't because of some, like, life-changing video with information and infographics on it. It was, they looked at Jesus and said, I don't know about any of the rest of this, but I'm going to follow this guy. There's something that's there. There's something that's going on there. That's what people said when Jesus was born. That's what people said when Jesus started to preach and to minister and to heal. They're like, no one spoke like this guy. He did something and people were amazed. They were like, People want to grill it. People want to get answers. They want explanations. Like, explain this. Like, how do we? Are, how are we supposed to figure this out? And people say, like, I don't know any of that. But I'm going to follow this guy because he's worth following. You know why? Because he's God in the flesh. The wisdom of heaven. That's who we follow. That's who we celebrate. My hope this week and this season, and even if it doesn't happen this season, my hope always, is that people who haven't seen Jesus will see Jesus. And that we can be like John the Baptist, we can be like Isaiah, we can be like any of these people who are faithful when God gave them a job to do and just said, there he is. I mean, I'm not going to stand in your way so you can't see Jesus. I feel like I do that more often than not. I just want to be someone who points people to Jesus and say, yes, he's worth following. Yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the Son of God. Yes, he gave his life for you because of his great love. Yeah. That's pretty much all I got. <laughs> that's, that's the encouragement as we lead into Christmas. Uh, maybe the best gift that we can give someone is just to say, "Yeah, I believe it." And let's let's discover Jesus together. I don't know. Maybe you put a Bible in someone's stocking, but that's kind of a passive thing to do, right? Like, hey, good luck. Start in Genesis. Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. North, I feel like I'm being mean to Genesis. Genesis is fine. But help them discover Jesus. Maybe say, pick one of the Gospels. Say, let's read a chapter a day. Jesus oh. <laughs> Sorry about that. Maybe read a, read a passage together. Study Jesus. Read a chapter, talk about it, meet together, be available for questions. But oh, God's going to do it one way or another. God is at work. Now, let me close that in prayer. Lord, thank you for all of it. Thank you for your word, which is, is new every time we open it. Thank you for your word, which by itself can change people's lives and pull them out of darkness and point them to Jesus. Thank you for the way your word has brought us to Jesus. Your word proclaimed. Your word modeled in the lives of the people we've encountered. Your word sung in worship. We're just so thankful that we have it. It's, it's, it's the best treasure we know. It's the best gift we could have been given. So thank you, Lord. We, we bow before you and we say thank you. And we ask that you can make us part of your story, that we can be those who point others to Jesus, who go joyfully on what Isaiah calls the way of holiness, the road that leads to worshiping you. Just draw us closer to you. Help us to understand, help us to proclaim, help us to communicate the good news that Jesus is here. Jesus is Lord. We ask all this in his name. Amen.